In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we'll continue with our hymn of the month, Jerusalem the Golden. That's not right. Rebecca's got it. Jerusalem the golden, with milk and honey blessed, the promise of salvation, the place of peace and rest. We know not, oh, we know not, what joys await us there, the sea of glory, the bliss beyond compare. Within those walls of Zion, sound forth a joyful song, as saints join with the angels and all them martyr throng. The princes ever with them, the daylight is supreme. The city of the blessed shines bright with glorious sheen. Around the throne of David, the saints from Loud their songs of triumph to celebrate the feast. They sing to Christ their leader who conquered in the fight, who won for them forever their gleaming robes of white. O sweet and blessed country, the home of God's elect. O sweet and blessed country, that faithful hearts expect. In mercy, Jesus, lead us to that eternal rest. With you and God the Father and Spirit ever blessed. Right, let's continue with the uh, Catechism Bible Memory work. So this is from the Table of Duties, the Biblical Commands. Uh, to workers, or um, also sometimes it translations will say employees. Um, the old translations actually just say uh, slaves, which we'll talk about in a second. So, uh, from Ephesians 6, 5 to 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor, when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, Ephesians 6, 5 to 6. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom 
and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. Kids can go off to Sunday school. All right, so um, for the uh, hymn of the month, I chose Jerusalem the Golden for two reasons. One, because we have All Saints Day today, uh, which we celebrate those who have uh, fell asleep in Christ, fallen asleep in Christ before us, the, all the Christians uh, who we have known and loved and who have um, experienced physical death but now are alive with Christ in bliss. And uh, we call that group of people, the saints, um, that we celebrate today on All Saints Day, the, uh, the church triumphant, the church triumphant. And uh, if you look in the hymnal, this is one downside of printing all our hymns in the bulletin, is you don't kind of get all the information that's in a hymnal if you use a hymnal uh, to sing from. But there's, you know, sections of hymns in the hymnal, right? So I just opened up to the Epiphany section. Those are the hymns we sing during Epiphany, the Epiphany season. If, wow, I turned right to it. That's that's great. If you uh, turn over to like around the 670s, um, you have the Church Triumphant section, the Church Triumphant section. And all the hymns that we'll sing today are basically from this section. Um, you have the uh, Ye Watchers and Ye Holy Ones. I think that's our distribution hymn today. Ye Watchers and Ye Holy Ones. Pretty familiar tune. Um, Jerusalem the Golden. Jerusalem, my happy home. Uh, Behold a host arrayed in white for all the saints. Uh, Really great hymns in that section. And they're all about heaven. They're all about uh, praising God for uh, saving his people that have um, fallen asleep in Christ, that have died a physical death and are now with him in bliss. And they're about us looking forward to that bliss that we're going to have in heaven, the triumph that we have in Christ. Right. The section right before that section is the church militant which is the hymns about um, being still on this earth, fighting the battle, fighting the fight uh, for the faith um, as we await the church triumphant. So you have the church militant and you have the church triumphant. Um, and these are all, those are both two great sections of the hymnal because, um, well, at the church militant, I think, you know, our, our uh, oftentimes in the modern American churches, uh, the music has become so feminized and so weak um, that men don't like to sing in church because it's all about me and my boyfriend, Jesus. Uh, that's, not, that's not the kind of hymns we sing here. We sing militant hymns, right, um, or triumphant hymns. So these are all great hymns. Um, so we have, all sa- the, we have Jerusalem the Golden, which is an All Saints hymn, but it's also a picture of heaven um, when Jesus comes back again. Right, the the city Jerusalem, the new the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and um, or the the walls of Zion, right around the throne of David. All these things are pictures of uh, when Christ comes back to establish the new heavens and the new earth. And we have at the end of November here, right before Advent um, starts, as we approach. Uh, the time of Advent, which is the church, the beginning of the church year, Advent is, uh, we have the end of the church year, which is where we think about and talk about Jesus coming back again. And so uh, it so happens that the way the church year falls this uh, year with where Christmas is and where Easter is, that um, November is a great time to sing these church triumphant hymns uh, about Jesus coming back again. And about the saints. So Jerusalem the Golden, uh, it's a great hymn with with really great imagery. Um, There is that big jump up to the E. So 
Uh, you got to use your head voice a little bit if you're like me right now and you have some allergies going on. Um, you got to jump up with your head voice, but it's all right. But all the imagery here is just is just beautiful. Um, that I mean, a lot of this is from Revelation: Jerusalem, the golden with milk and honey, blessed. Uh, the the promise of salvation, the pe- place of peace and rest. Um, bliss beyond compare. It's a great, great hymn. Um, I happen to know it's Pastor Elkin's favorite hymn, so I have to sing it at least a couple times a year. Um, if you tell me, like, this is my favorite hymn, then I kind of have to, you know, make sure we sing it sometimes. So if you have a favorite hymn, you can let me know. Uh, but that's that's the that's Jerusalem the Golden. Um, fantastic, fantastic hymn. So... Uh, what else is I going to talk about? The catechism. So in the Bible memory work this week, um, which is connected to the catechism uh, table of duties, you have uh, this passage from Ephesians 6, which we've talked about parents and children uh, in the last couple weeks. Ephesians 6 is where Paul uh, himself goes into a lot of these kind of table of duties things where he says, look, if you're a parent, this is how you act. This is how your ordered relationship is. If you're a child, this is how your ordered relationship is uh, in the world. If you're an employee, if you're an employer, uh, this is how you act. Although he doesn't use the terms employer and employee, uh, he uses the term master and slave. And um, there's a couple things to say about that. The first thing to say, which um, this will probably get me canceled off of, of Podbean where I upload the podcast – but uh, slavery is not a sinful institution in and of itself, according to the Bible. Um, throughout the Bible, there is the concept of slavery um, represented over and over again. And you can especially see this in the book of Philemon, uh, if you want, where Paul writes to a slave master and uh, talks to him about what to do with his slave Onesimus and uh, what Paul says there and what what he says here is that um, this is an institution in society it is man-made it's not like marriage it's not an institution created by God Uh, but there is an ordering to it just like there's an ordering to uh, parents and children just like there's an ordering of pastor to congregation just like there's an ordering of government to citizens, uh, there's an ordering in the institution of masters and slaves. And we, we can take these passages and apply them uh, in our context where we don't have slavery um, institutionalized in our country to employers and employees. Um, but in, in the context that Paul's writing, um, he says – basically what he says about slavery is it can – it can happen in a righteous way. It can also happen in an unrighteous way, right? So same thing with marriage, right? Um, just because a husband is to lead and rule over his wife, that doesn't mean that he has the right to beat her, right? Um, that would not be loving his wife as Christ loved the church. Same thing with slavery. Uh, just because um, there is a slave that works for a household – doesn't mean that the master of the household has a right to uh, beat his slave or to mistreat his slave, right? And so when we think about the Civil War, which obviously colors our ideas about slavery um, and what we were re- what we read in, in the history books growing up, uh, we have to remember, and you you can get this if you uh, I have I have a couple of these books. Um, Back in the 30s, they recorded a bunch of what are called slave narratives. So if you look up like Mississippi slave narratives, you can find this on Amazon um, where they found a bunch of people who were slaves that were still alive in the 1930s. And they recorded their um, – they, they interviewed them and recorded their interviews um, in writing, not, not audio, in writing. And what you can see in there is that some slaves were mistreated, and that's sinful, right? Some, some slaves were beaten. Some slaves were not fed properly. Some slaves were not taken care of, and, and that's wrong. That's sinful, 
right? Uh, that's the master not fulfilling his duty to these people that he's brought into his household. Um, however, some slaves were treated very, very well and actually wanted to stay and serve their uh, master's house even after they were freed, right? And um, sometimes uh, – so, so that – Paul talks about both those things. He says, masters, you need to act this way towards your slaves if you've taken responsibility for this person in your household, right? Because that's what a slave is. It's uh, taking someone into your household and, and becoming responsible for them, and they, and they serve you, right? Uh, they serve your household. Um, instead of having their own household, uh, they become a servant of your household. And um, that – and sometimes that, that went well, and sometimes it didn't, right? So – um, masters need to treat their slaves this way. But here Paul says, you know, slaves, you should also obey your master. If you've been um, called to this position in life, right? And some people would seek slavery, right? So that sometimes there's also another conversation about how people end up in slavery, which is can also involve sin or not involve sin, right? Again, if you look at the American South, of war, some people wanted to be slaves. Again, they wanted, they didn't want the stresses of running their own household. They wanted to, um, basically, to to be taken care of and have um, a house to uh, quarters to live in and food to eat and and you know basically just uh, indenture themselves to to these other people. So um, how people end up in slavery is also an issue of that can be sin or not. But uh, anyway, my point is that with all those qualifications, slavery in the Bible is not actually a sinful institution. Um, when you read Philemon, uh, Paul does want Onesimus to be freed uh, so that Onesimus can help him in spreading the gospel. Uh, but he never says, you know, you have to do this because it's sinful if you don't do this, right? So um, these are just things to think about. When, when you read the Bible. Oh, the other thing I was going to say is um, sometimes Christians get uncomfortable with this because it does go against our modern uh, ideas about that we're taught, you know, in school and things about slavery. But um, one thing to keep, and, and they'll use verse, they'll use passages like the Exodus that Israel was enslaved and that was bad. Well, if you look closely at at the beginning of Exodus, what's happening? Um, is that the Egyptians are beating the Israelites and uh, treating them poorly, right? They're they're uh, punishing them un- unrighteously, and um, you know they make them make bricks without straw and so, you know those kinds of things. So the um, whenever they're suffering because of their slavery, the sinfulness in that is not the fact that they're slaves. They willingly went into slavery. Right. If you remember Joseph, um, they willingly went into uh, control under the Egyptians because of the famine and um, because the Egyptians provided them with land and with a place to live. Um, But when the pharaohs became evil and started being oppressive to the Israelites, that's when the problems arose. So, again, we just always have to read carefully here and remember that um, the Bible's not always going to line up with the world's morals at a certain time, right? So um, I'm, I'm also not advocating, by the way, I should just say this, um, trying as hard as I can not to get canceled off Podbean, that I'm not advocating that we reinstitute slavery or anything like that, right? We're, we're in – we are where we are in history, and um, the the – there's nothing there's no reason that we need to you know institute this in a place where it doesn't exist anymore right um, at least not on a widespread or institutionalized scale um, there's no reason to be like yeah let's do this new new thing right we, that's not how our country works anymore but um, we just need I, I don't want to ever call someone even in history sinful because of something that they did that is not actually against the Bible, right? And I think that's the danger: is that um, our, you know, our history books and our and our world's morals they want to 
cast um, judgment on people in the past that did something that was not actually sinful, and that's not our call to make, right? So um, we need to be careful of that. The, the final caveat to give, again, trying as hard as I can not to get canceled here, is that um, slavery is not by in and of itself uh, by itself racial in nature either. Um, at one point in colonial America, there were more white slaves than there were black slaves. A lot of people don't know that, but I have ancestors who were slaves that picked in cotton fields, and you can see the color of my skin, right? So, um, the and and I in you know ancient Rome, the same thing was true. All sorts of people ended up in slavery. So that's the other thing is that slavery does not equal racism either which is um, whatever racism means today. I mean, that, that word also constantly changes. But um, that's something else to note about that. Anyway, I spent way too long on that. But any, any questions on the hymn or the catechism this week? All right. All right, so we're picking back up with last week. Uh, we're taking a sh- very short break from Bible history, and we're covering the history of the Reformation. Last week was Reformation Sunday. And um, we're asking this question, where are we from? The reason we're talking about the Reformation and Martin Luther is because uh, knowing where you're from truly matters. So we talked about this idea in the Bible, and I'm going to talk about this in the sermon a little bit today too. Genesis or, or source, the source of something, and how it actually matters. So you can see in the word Genesis, which is the word... Uh, obviously in the first book of the Bible, the genesis of the world, you can see the term genealogy in there, um, same root, same Greek root, genealogy. And um, you see this idea all over in the Bible, for instance, when Jesus talks about how a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit, um, and how in Romans 5, uh, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and it was inherited by men uh, through their genealogy um, that the the father passes down uh, the sin through begetting children, that where things come from matter, right? Uh, the, the works that someone does, whether good or bad, have a source in their heart. Um, creation, Genesis, has a source in God. Therefore, that because the source is good, the creation is good. Then the creation is corrupt by sin, and then uh, that when things have a root in sinfulness, then they're bad. So the root of things matters, right? Where we come from matters, because in our modern world we have this idea that we're self-made, that we can, you know, make ourselves, that we can, um, we can deny where we're from. And that you know our parents don't matter, where the the place that we grew up doesn't matter. We can be whoever we want to be, and um, we're like a blank slate, right? We can make ourselves whoever we want to be, and you see that with all sorts of things. Uh, you know, with the modern uh, sexuality ethic, you see this with all sorts of things that people think they are self-made. Um, but the truth is, uh, people, ideas, works—they all have a genesis. Okay, and when we think about our theology, our beliefs, and um, how we read the Bible, uh, we need to think about: Is this coming from a good place? Right? Is uh, our is where we're from as a church? Does it have good roots? Right? Are we following uh, in the ways that Jesus taught his apostles, and the way that the apostles taught in the early church, and the way that the faithful church remained faithful throughout church history? So on and so on. And that brings us to Martin Luther, right? Who, um, and this is just review from last week, so we'll just run through this real quick. Martin Luther, who was looking for a good route, he was looking for peace with God, uh, which he could not seem to find in his life. And he realized that the source of the Roman Catholic Church had gotten rotten, right? The, um, the source of uh, the Pope was not a good source, and so he needed to go back to a better source. He needed to go back to the scriptures. Um, 
Actually, uh, there's a phrase that comes out of, as I'm thinking about this, there's a phrase that comes out of the Reformation uh, that's literally back to the sources. Um, that the Reformers were the ones who went back into, um, they really invented the study of what we call now patristics, which is the study of the early church, because um, they had to, whenever they were fighting for the, the gospel faith, the true faith, they had to go back into church history and prove that this is not made up. This is not new, right? This is coming from, this is what Athanasius taught. This is what Augustine taught, right? Um, they actually had to go back to the sources. So anyway, um, so quick life of Martin Luther and his kind of development of theology. That's what we talked about last week. Um, he was raised to be a lawyer uh, from a peasant family, but he was really smart and his parents wanted him to um, move up in life. And so he was raised to be a lawyer, but he to study law, you also studied theology because um, the Holy Roman Empire, as we talked about last week, Holy Roman, it's Roman Catholic, right? It's very religious. It's an empire. It's a monarchy. It's a Roman Catholic monarchy, basically. Um, and in the Holy Roman Empire, the church and state are much more intertwined than uh, they are for us today um, in America, where we have the idea of separation of church and state, as often misunderstood as that is. Um, the Holy Roman Empire, obviously, much more intertwined. And so to study law, you also studied church law, and um, he fell in love with theology, um, but he couldn't find peace with God. And so he, uh, he entered the monastic life, um, became an Augustinian friar, and uh, started to uh, study theology. But no matter how many works he did, no matter how many good uh, things he tried to do um, by being a friar, uh, he kept realizing how sinful he was. And he kept going to confession with his father confessor, Johann Staupitz. And uh, Staupitz got fed up with him at one point because he would literally sit there for hours and try and think of every sin he ever committed and said, that's enough. Just forget about it and look to Christ, um, which was actually a good thing for him to say, uh, even though Staupitz didn't have a full understanding of um, the, the gospel, as he was also led astray by the Roman Catholic Church at the time, he didn't yet have this full understanding. But he did know that someone shouldn't sit there for hours in their sin, um, that they needed the comfort of Christ. And so he tried to eventually distract Luther by sending him to be a professor in Wittenberg, uh, Germany, and also to be the city preacher there. And that's where uh, Luther started... Um, studying the Bible uh, more, he was teaching on the Psalms mainly, and he took a trip to Rome, and he realized uh, that the Roman Catholic Church, the late medieval Roman Catholic Church, had gotten so far away from the scriptures, and um, that these wealthy churchmen who were high up in the feudal system of the empire um, were trying to take advantage of the poor uh, Roman Catholic peasants. And we're selling them these indulgences uh, to pay for a nice new church in Rome and saying this will give you time off of purgatory, which, of course, is you know, a made-up doctrine of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Um, we'll, give you time, we'll give you some time off of purgatory. Basically, you can pay your way into heaven. Um, and uh, so that's when Luther drafts the 95 Theses. And the 95 Theses are um, really not so theological. Um, and this is 1517, uh, which you probably know. Um, we had the 500th anniversary of the Reformation in 2017, um, which the, marks the 95 Theses. 95 Theses is also marks Reformation Day, October 31st, um, the, on All Hallows' Eve, All Saints' Eve, right? So November 1st is All Saints' Day, All Saints' Eve or All Hallows' Eve, as it was called is Reformation Day. That's when Luther posted the theses. The theses are more of a, um, as we talked about last week, a political and academic document. Um, political in the sense that it's about indulgences and about wealthy churchmen taking advantage of the poor. Um, it's not so much uh, argued on the basis of the Bible. Um, 
and academic in the sense that theses were what theses were that it was common to post theses they were the basis for a debate so people academics would post theses then come together and then argue on the basis of formal logic um, with the theses as the propositions so uh, that's what the theses were uh, they were basically the basis for a debate that Luther wanted to have. He wanted to debate these things in a formal way. Well, that made a lot of people really upset over the next four years um, because uh, for the emperor, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, the guy in charge of the empire, um, this meant that there was division in the church, which was not good for him. And uh, especially because he was always dealing with this problem of invading Turks or Muslims into the Holy Roman Empire, which, uh, by the way, the Holy Roman Empire is basically modern-day Germany. I think we talked about that last week. But um, he was always dealing with this problem, and he didn't want his people divided. Um, and then a problem for the pope, obviously, because he was being called out for his unfaithfulness. So Charles V orders – uh, this uh, diet or diet, which is a meeting, right? Uh, basically, a trial of sorts, where people are going to come out and figure out their differences. Um, of Worms, which is a place in Germany, uh, not a diet of red wigglers, right? Um, but a diet of Worms in 1521. And this is where Luther gives his fav famous statement. Um, I'll just read it for you. Because it's uh, so good whenever uh, he's asked to recant the things that he wrote. Um, because he also wrote, by the way, in 1519 and 1520, um, more theological treatises against the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so uh, because it, he wrote the Babylonian captivity, which is a, about the Roman Catholic Church taking people captive by their bad sacramental theology. And... Freedom of the Christian in 1519 is about um, how the Christian is free in the gospel and not bound anymore to um, the condemnation of the law contra the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Also in 1519 is when he had that tower moment, supposedly, when he realized uh, from Romans 1 that the just shall live by faith, which means that uh, we do not depend on our own works, but on the work of Christ. So anyway, uh, that happened between 1519 and 1520. In 1521, he's asked to recant all of this that he's written, um, 95 Theses, Babylonian Captivity, Freedom of Christian, plus some other things. He says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust in the pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures and I have quoted that I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe or right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. All right, so that's a great quote. Um, that his the, the best part in there is that his conscience is bound to the word of God, right? And uh, this is the attitude that I think all pastors and all Christians need to take on is that um, no matter what the world says, no matter what uh, what is easy in life to do, um, our consciences have to be bound by the word of God, right? Even if it means we have to repent of sins uh, in the past, even if it means um, we have to be uncomfortable or be persecuted or whatever it may be, uh, our consciences need to be bound to the word of God. All right, so uh, Luther is excommunicated as a heretic, um, and uh, before he can be put on trial and, and killed um, by the state, his elector, Frederick the Wise, so the Roman Empire emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, is elected by geographical electors. So there's a kind of a their their lower level of the emperor. Um, their electors who elect him, the emperor to power, and Luther's elector Frederick the Wise in Saxony um, protects him and hides him in the Wartburg Castle. 
And in the Wartburg Castle is where Luther translates the Bible into German. Um, and when he does that, at the same time, the Gutenberg printing press is developed. And Luther is able to distribute the scriptures for the first time in the history of the German people. Um, because basically the scriptures were only in Latin, so only learned people could read the scriptures before. Um, right? He's able to distribute the scriptures to the masses. And this, is, this, is, this can't be underestimated, the power of this, um, that people can read the Bible for themselves. This is where we left off last time. And uh, Luther is celebrated in Germany to this day, not for any of his theological uh, work really, but for this reason, that he brought knowledge and um, really developed the German language for the masses, the common German language. Um, Luther is uh, celebrated to this day. I think the Reformation, even in how um, liberalized Germany is, the Reformation is still a – Holiday in Germany, a national holiday because of this, um, because of the development of the German language that he brought. And the Reformation explodes from here. So um, not only is the scripture published so people can read scripture alone and see how far off base the medieval Roman Catholic Church was, but then they're publishing and publishing and publishing uh, tracts and essays and all sorts of things. So you can like the freedom of the Christian or the Babylonian captivity. Those are only maybe 20 pages each. I mean, they're not they're not long. They're just essays um, going over the offenses of the Roman Catholic Church. The 95 theses are spread about. Um, so the Reformation takes off from here, right? It just it just explodes. Um, and uh, the Wartburg Castle is also where Luther starts to see a lot of. Things in the Roman Catholic Church, not just the indulgences and not just the salvation by works theology, um, but all these things that really go against Scripture. As he translates the whole of Scripture, he sees some of this stuff just doesn't line up. So uh, marriage of the priest, right? This is where he changes his mind that priests can be married, um, uh, which is super clear in Scripture because <laughs> Paul literally says in the qualifications for being a pastor – that they should be a husband of one wife, <laughs> so um, things like that. Um, private masses, uh, relics, all sorts of stuff. He starts to see. Okay, um, that kind of sums up uh, Luther in that sense. Basically, until 1546, um, at this point, Luther is going to travel. He's going to preach. Um, there's a lot of other things he does. He writes a massive amount. Um, if you go in my office, the red books, Luther's works, um, that's not even all of what he wrote by any means. But um, he wrote a lot and, and preached a lot and taught a lot. Um, so we have tons of stuff from, from Luther. Uh, he probably published – he's probably one of the top ten like most published authors ever in history. I mean he just wrote so much. Um, but that's basically what he's doing uh, for the rest of the Reformation is – um, writing, preaching, solving problems whenever people run into things. But there's other things that are going along in the Reformation. So I'm going to slide over here. Um, what time is it? All right. I got 10 minutes to finish up the rest of the Reformation. So the, the next biggest thing you need to know is the Augsburg Confession. And this is, uh, in some ways, bigger than some of the things Luther did. So. Uh, there are wars going on, as I mentioned earlier. There's um, because of the Reformation, there's a thing called the Peasants' War going on, um, where peasants are revolting against uh, their leadership, which Luther is actually against. By the way, he doesn't. Um, he wants the citizens to obey their their government, and he wants there to be peace, if at all possible. There's also the uh, War of the Turks, the invading Turks. There's the Muslims that are uh, threatening to invade the Holy Roman Empire. And so Charles V again says uh, this is a problem, so he summons another diet um, in 1530, uh, the Diet of Augsburg. And Luther can't be there. 
um, because he's still under political pressure. This is an S. Um, so uh, there's a one of his fellow professors who's kind of the brains behind the Reformation, if you will. Luther's the personality. This guy, Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon. Melanchthon is the the kind of brains, and he writes a document called the Augsburg Confession. And at the Diet of Augsburg on uh, June 25th, 1530, um, he writes, uh, he reads the Augsburg Confession and says, this is the Lutheran Confession of Faith. And it goes through um, 28 articles of doctrine and practice and says uh, this is the basic outline of the Christian faith. It's a, we really should do it for Bible study sometime. It's a, it's a good document. Um, and so uh, let me jump forward to modern-day Lutheran churches. A lot of modern-day Lutheran churches, their full name will be something like Beautiful Savior Evangelical Lutheran Church – of the unaltered Augsburg Confession. Um, that's not our full name. Our full name is actually just Beautiful Savior Lutheran Church in the Constitution. But a lot of churches will, uh, modern day Lutheran churches will say, uh, this is our basic confession of faith still, right? Um, and it starts with like God, original sin, Jesus. Like it, it's all very basic things. And it's all based on the Bible. Um, so sometimes you'll hear that phrase, unaltered Augsburg Confession, um, and sometimes you'll see it on cornerstones of Lutheran churches. So if you ever visit another Lutheran church, look for this on the cornerstone. You'll see it as UAC um, on the cornerstone, uh, which is which is a nice thing, right, that, that our church is based on a, a pure Christian confession of faith. Um, and really, in some ways, I think this would be a better date for the Reformation, um, because the 95 Theses, like I said, are a political document, this is actually the theological document, right? So um, when we uh, we don't have the 95 Theses in our um, Book of Concord, which is our Book of Confessions, uh, we do have the Augsburg Confession. All right. So historic. Anyway, so I think um, when we get to the 500th anniversary of this in eight years. Um, this would be really something to celebrate, I think, as the – anyway. Um, they didn't leave it up to me. I mean, but but I think this would be a better uh, really date for the – for Reformation theology at least. Um, so basically what happens from there is that the Roman church uh, refutes it um, in, some, in something called the uh, confutation, I believe. And then um, there – after that, uh, Melanchthon writes – the apology, which is a word for defense, that's where we get apologetics, not, hey, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. but defense of the Augsburg Confession. So um, we get the apology of the Augsburg Confession um, a couple years, or basically, um, I think he writes it that year, but uh, the, after the Roman refutation. Um, and from here, uh, they decide basically that the, the Lutherans and the Catholics are divided. Um, and by the way, they never called themselves Lutheran. I know I've said this before. They called themselves at the time – Lutheran was a derogatory term that ended up sticking later on. But um, they called themselves evangelicals, which is the word for gospel. right? And so euangelion in Greek is uh, gospel, and they said we're the gospel Christians. right? We're the gospel people. So – um, I know a lot of people uh, who think that we should be called evangelical Catholics. That would be the best term for us. but um, Because Catholic just means the ones who hold to the universal faith, which the Roman Catholic Church does not. But I think that's too confusing. I'll just stick with Lutheran. But um, anyway, uh, it's kind of interesting. They called themselves evangelicals, not Lutheran. But the Lutherans, the evangelicals, and the Roman Catholics at this point are divided. Um, and... Uh, there was – let me – let's see. I got five minutes. Let me see what else I want to do. Um, we'll skip the small called league. Uh, basically, there were 
the Lutherans had to form a kind of military to defend themselves. Um, but then in 1555, uh, Lutheranism is granted uh, legal status, and uh, there's peace where basically they say whoever the ruler of the lower magistrate, the ruler of a certain um, place is, so like the elector, uh, can uh, determine what the official religion of that city is or that that place. So um, you have some places in the Holy Roman Empire that are Lutheran and some places that are Roman Catholic, and that's how they kind of divide things up. Uh, later on, you get the radical reformers, Zwingli, Calvin, um, and other offshoots, and those roots are mainly in Switzerland, um, and that's where we get not just Lutherans, but then we also get Calvinists and then eventually Methodists and Anabaptists and Baptists and all sorts of things. Um, and again, they all end up um, getting their own little places where, you know, this part of Switzerland is Calvinist, this part of Germany is uh, Lutheran, you know, so on and so forth. Um, Luther debated a lot of radical reformers. Um, so he debated Zwingli on the Lord's Supper. Zwingli was the first person to say that the Lord's Supper is only symbolic and not really Jesus' body and blood. Um, that's Zwingli. Um, and uh, Luther was against this, right? He said basically the point here is that Lutheranism is a conservative reformation. Um, Lutheranism was not meant to be a radical reformation. Right? We, we weren't trying to destroy um, and rebuild Christianity into our own thing um, like the radical reformers did. Uh, we were trying to take all the – we weren't trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater essentially, right? Take anything good from the Catholic Church um, and preserve it and throw out anything that was contrary to the gospel. It was a conservative reformation. Um, so Luther didn't like uh, – he debated these radical reformers who were basically saying if it's a little bad, um, then we need to throw out everything. We need to – they literally would like break all the stained glass windows and say anything – from the Roman Catholic Church is, um, you know, really bad. So you can see holdovers of that really in our like liturgy, that the radical reform churches are much lower church um, than we are. We're much higher church in the sense of the, the liturgical aspect, um, and that's because we said, look, things like vestments, things like clerical collars, things like stained glass, these things teach, right? These these things. Uh, are beautiful imagery that help teach the people the gospel. These things are not things that need to be destroyed and broken down. Okay. Um, all right. Let's see here. So let me just um, kind of sum this up, back, going back to this question where we're from. So that that's basically the... A very brief history of the Reformation. We'll go back to Bible history next week. But um, one question is, so why, if this is where we're from, why do we still hold to this? Why do we still hold to the unaltered Augsburg Confession? It's some random document from 1530. Well, we hold to it because it's true, and it's got a good source. Uh, because Luther went back, uh, and others like Melanchthon, Faithful Christians went back to the source of Scripture, and they said, what does Scripture teach? And they said it teaches faith alone, right? Scripture alone. These are the I, the solas of the Reformation, just Latin for alone. Um, scripture alone. Grace alone. Christ alone. And uh, sometimes also included in there is uh, glory to God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. This is what this is what the Bible teaches, and it is a good source, right? So um, when you look at ancestry, when you look at genealogy, where you look at where you're from, uh, one thing you're going to see is that it's not always neat and tidy, right? Sometimes things have to be figured out at diets 
things have we have to come together. We have to debate things with the 95 theses, right? Uh, we have to make good confessions of faith, like the Augsburg Confession. Things are not neat and tidy. But what you can also see is that there is a rich tradition to follow. There is uh, good roots that have their root in God, that have their root in the scriptures, and that we continue to follow today, right? And I think I kind of described it this way last week, that when someone goes to find a church, um, it's not like they're going uh, to pick out something at the store, say, let's talk about a five-year-old, say they're picking out a Hot Wheel, right? And there's just, there's a red one and a blue one and a green one, and a truck and a race car and there's all these different ones and they just kind of pick out whichever one looks the nicest to them it's not like that when you go to find a faithful church when you go to find a faithful church it's not starting at the bottom where these where these kind of all these options and looking up at all the options and just picking one out at random we start at the source we start at god the father creator of heaven and earth and at and God the Son and the Holy Spirit, and we start with Scripture, and then we take a look at church history, and we see places where church history was divided, and we see who followed those scriptures, and we follow our way down until we end up at this place, and it so happens to be the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in our place in our time in history. And that's not random. It's not coincidental. It's not just like, oh, I just happen to be Lutheran, right? Um, you're Lutheran because it's the place of good roots. It's the place of Scripture alone. And um, being connected to that, uh, being members of this true uh, Catholic in the right sense of the word faith is important. Any questions or comments? All right. Um, yeah, I have more stuff on the Reformation, but we got to get back to Bible history, so we'll do that next week. But if you want to know about the Book of Concord, uh, more which I mentioned, or about um, the more details on the Radical Reformation, or about how Lutherans got to America, those were the things I didn't cover. Just let me know, and um, I can give you resources or talk to you about that. All right, let's end in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you have preserved your word on earth. We thank and praise you that you have always had a faithful remnant who has confessed your word on earth and who has passed down that word to us. We pray that you would keep us ever faithful in the midst of all sufferings and trials and persecution, that we would make a good confession of your name and in the end win the crown of eternal life which is your glory to give to us. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.